Hello, everyone, and welcome to The View from Venus. My name is Mary Churchill, and on today's episode, I am joined by my lovely co-host, Meg Palladino, and our guest expert, Sharon Stein, Assistant Professor of Education at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, and author of Unsettling the University, Confronting the Colonial Foundations of U.S. Higher Education. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Sharon about decolonization in the context of higher education, the challenges of teaching in this context, and the future of higher education and the difficulty of imagining a different future. Sharon, I am so happy to have you here. So today's question, Mary, I thought of you. What is your favorite dessert? Oh my gosh. Well, I have to say that I have a huge sweet tooth. So pretty much all of them but definitely have a weakness for chocolate and peanut butter things, for sure. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that is my favorite combination. But I will say, like, the first thing that popped into my head was a really a dark chocolate, rich chocolate mousse. Like, there's mm-hmm. just sometimes where that just takes me over the moon. And it only <laughs> really takes one spoonful that, I, like, it changes. I'm in a, I just, like... You know, it's like one of those TV ads where you're like, Calgon, take me away, like chocolate <laughs> mousse, take me away. So I think that's my favorite. No matter what, I'll always take a bite of chocolate mousse. So how I about you? Cannoli. Cannoli? Cannoli. Mm. Because I'm never gonna make them. You yeah. know. <laughs> and we had a lot, you know, growing up we always had cannoli. And that just there's never a cannoli on the menu or like a really good Italian bakery. I gotta go get some. Good choice. Meg makes really good Italian. What are they? Italian wedding cookies? Is that what they're called? Yeah, Ingenetti. Yeah. Mm. I have a, Meg knows this, but I always made sure that I had a best friend who was Italian growing up so I could go over to their house to eat. (laughs) I always made sure I had a friend with an Ingram pool. That was my... So the first question I have for you is you have written about decolonization in the context of higher education and the challenges of teaching within this context. Tell us a bit about that work that we're all immersed within that reality, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, this is a huge question. We could probably just spend the whole time talking about this and more. I guess one sort of starting place would just be this notion that, you know, recognizing that decolonization has become something of a buzzword on our campuses. And people often assume when we use it, we're talking about the same thing, but actually people use it in many different ways. And in particular, there's sort of a, I know just like a growing frustration on the part of my indigenous colleagues that the word is sort of often separated from its political origins and implications. There's a great piece by Adam Godry and Danielle Lorenz in 2018 that sort of maps different approaches to indigenization and decolonization. I I also have a a paper from 2015 with colleagues that does something similar just to try and sort of uh, broaden awareness of the different ways this is used and the implications of those different ways. But I think there's lots of different sort of underlying forces that are driving this move to decolonization, but most have sort of at least a basic recognition that our universities have been historically and still are bound up in colonial systems including not just our knowledge systems, like what we teach in our courses and how we research, but also the political and economic systems that universities are actually embedded in 
and function to reproduce in a settler society. So of course, like the most maybe basic one is that all U.S. universities are on indigenous lands, which, and they have huge role in settler society. So educating students into disciplines that have colonial roots and producing knowledge within those disciplines. And we really haven't, we've only in some cases begun to scratch the surface of our responsibilities as in the case of, of me at least like a settler academic and our, our settler institutions in relation to these colonial entanglements because our lives and livelihoods are basically still premised on this ongoing dispossession of indigenous peoples. And there's many other dimensions of, of decolonization that people bring in depending on the approach you're taking. But I think what I've actually started to do is talk more about confronting colonialism in higher education rather than decolonizing higher education, because I think confronting colonialism is sort of like the first step towards decolonization. And I think people often want to skip steps because we think we're more advanced than we really are. So I'm sort Ongoing of like- Ongoing project for the rest yeah, of our lives. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> how can we like slow down and, and see how much work there is to be done so that we can build the stamina to keep it going in the long haul, especially when it gets difficult and uncomfortable, which is where we need to go. <laughs> but we're, we're basically taking baby steps right now. So important to recognize that. Then the question of what it means to teach in this context is sort of like a whole other <laughs> thing. Yeah, and you know, interesting, and, and we can spend the whole time on this because I think this is really huge. You know, I think of, I think that of the parallels to anti-racism, obviously, especially in the U.S. This is very big, right? And, and you didn't use the word trendy, but I think these things become trendy and then they become, uh, you know, to get all theoretical, like a simulacrum of the reality, right? Like there, there's the depth, we lose the depth. And, but I do think that when we're not careful, and, and I'd love for you to talk about this in the facing colonialism space, our students walk away with a very surface understanding and they mm -hmm. go out into the world and mm -hmm. they take that with them and can do more harm than good as if we had yeah. never taught them before, right? And especially when it comes to policy, and moving the needle on closing equity gaps. This is again, race. What I've seen is they don't know what they don't know. And I, you know, the more I do on the ground policy work, the more I see the failings of our teaching in the space of equity, diversity, and inclusion, especially in the U.S. So what do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's absolutely the case that like we need to create capacity in ourselves and, and our students for more depth and complexity in engaging with these issues. I think in general, maybe in education, but maybe particularly around the most actually complex issues, we want simple solutions. We want someone to tell us what to do. We want you know, a step-by-step -step guide to decolonization. And in reality, it's just much more messy than that. And different people need different things. So going to the question of like teaching, you know, what's, what's most pedagogically effective for a white settler student in regards to these issues, maybe something that's actually, it's not only not effective, but could be harmful for an indigenous, black or racialized student. Conversely, like the kinds of conversations that black, indigenous and racialized students might want to have about this, 
they might feel like they can't do that in a space with white settler students present because they're worried about the response that they might get of sort of the white resistance. So that's, I think, something that we we also need to keep in mind. Like there's this idea that we can have a universal pedagogy or universal conversation about this. So say and more about that because I'm teaching right now and I think I'm actually facing that. So what do you do? <laughs> I mean, one, like the first step is to name this, I think, to interrupt that desire, again, like for ourselves, but also for our students, that one way of doing it or one conversation is going to be for everybody. And I mean, then practically speaking, there's things you can do, like have caucusing as part of a class, maybe not every, like the whole class, but maybe in certain conversations or in certain moments where white students caucus with other white students and racialized and indigenous students caucus amongst themselves, which is of course, you know, flattening heterogeneities within those groups, but in some cases it's important nonetheless. So that actually, like when they come back together, they're much more sort of calibrated and calm and able to, to have generative conversations at that interface. Whereas if we try to keep everyone together the whole time. How do you introduce that? Meaning like, I would feel more comfortable if I came from the students, but like as the teacher, I, how do you introduce it? You know, it, it depends on the context, but in a lot of cases, students get it. And I think even have been maybe wanting it or didn't know that they wanted it. But then when you name it, it's like, oh yeah. I definitely think in my experience, there's more resistance on the white students part. It's sort of like, oh, I want us all to be together. And I want to hear what my racialized and indigenous fellow students will have to say, which is that sort of- formativity is just so, it's so excruciatingly painful. I, it's just, I mean, it's painful obviously for the racialized students, but it, yeah. Yeah. No. Well, there's also like the, the kind of entitlement to access their conversations and their thoughts, which is some, you know, a colonial impulse that is just sort of socialized into us as white people. So, but even that in itself is like a learning opportunity. So once you get then maybe the white caucus students together and you kind of like, well, let's actually talk about this resistance because that's another thing that is really central for me when teaching about things like colonialism or climate change, very heavy, complex topics is that I think we as educators often think that these are informational problems. Like it's a problem of ignorance. People just don't know, you know, how bad racism is or how bad climate change is. And I think sometimes there's definitely elements of that, and it's a part of it because our educational systems are not basically set up to address these things. But the other part is that I think these systems of, of unsustainability and coloniality get reproduced because we benefit from them as white people. Like they are, they are delicious to us. So even if we have the information that this is intellectually, we know this is a problem and it's harmful, the kind of effective desires and investments that we have in the continuity of the colonial system often outweigh like any critique that we might have. So it's actually, how do we interrupt the colonial desires and denials that result from that, like the denial of the harm that our systems are actually causing to people in the planet, which is a very different kind of education than, you know, banking education where you input the information, right? So I think having students actually like sit with their own responses to something and like take a step back and say like okay where where is my resistance coming from and having that be the focus of some conversations as opposed to like 
the content of the article. Okay, how did you respond to the article? Did you resist this part when they were talking about white fragility? What is that teaching you about your own white fragility and the work you still need to do? So viewing themselves as the content in addition to sort of like the content of the piece itself. I like that. And I do think that the, the generation be kind of 22 to 32 right now mm -hmm. is uh, willing to do that work in a way that I haven't seen prior generations. Well, you've also written about the future of higher education on our ability or lack thereof to imagine a different future. What could the future of higher ed look like? Yeah. So this is a great question. And it's, of course, I'm going to probably have a frustrating answer. I think there's two, <laughs> I always do. There's probably two separate issues that I'd like to kind of pull out here. The first has to do with the fact that probably can you resonate with that our minds and our like imaginaries have been so colonized that it's really difficult for us to imagine something other than the higher education we already have with a few sort of alterations and people might have different preferences about what those alterations are but basically it's the same you know thing with a, a little a few you know window Chocolate dressing things with a little bit of coconut or some peanut <laughs> sprinkles <Yes>, exactly <laughs> so then then once we see that there's often this like okay well let's let's think outside the box but then you know like there's always another box there that and often we're not seeing it. so i think this like invitation that we often get to like imagine something different like i think there's a time and a place for that and there's ways to do that well but i i also know that like these colonial frames they are again not just intellectual and they're not just conscious they're also unconscious so when we imagine a future from where we are now in this deeply colonial space we often end up projecting some colonial assumptions and desires into the future and then saying like okay let's let's all go there and I think there's also there's like very different ways of thinking about the future than we do in sort of like modern western colonial society so for instance like what if we looked at the future as something we kind of weave together as we go and negotiate amongst all of our many differences instead of like one group determining what the future is and then dragging everybody there with them. And then, and then the emphasis is not on the outcome or where we're arriving, but rather on the integrity of the process of moving itself and the quality of relationships that we develop and nurture as we move together. That being said, like we still need to ask questions about the future so that we don't, for instance, re reproduce the things we don't want to reproduce or re repeat that. So actually looking to the future requires us to look at the past and the present and say, what have we done wrong? What do we not want to repeat? What lessons have we learned or not yet learned that we need to learn in order to make a truly kind of different and hopefully wiser future possible? This is what I would think of the future as being like that movie Wally, where like the robots <laughs> do everything and we just like sit there sipping our drinks, watching screens. And so I'm just sort of assuming we'll all be replaced by robots someday. No. <laughs> well, breaking my heart, Meg. That's my decision. Like, you know, I've you're got my team. You're supposed to be the romantic, not me. Like, here we are. It's definitely a possibility. But I think the other thing is that, like, when we think about relationships, we often romanticize them too, right? And I think in reality, like, they, it, it's the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah because we have the good, the bad, the ugly within us. And of course, there's the systemic issues of like, 
the class like i am the white woman educator this is like a classic colonial trope you know there's like john gast's painting american progress where there's this like angelic white woman floating across the frontier holding a school book like it's so in your face yeah. that that's the role we as white women educators play so it's like how do we try and have different kinds of relationships but recognizing that we're not coming with a clean slate we're oh, coming yeah. with the weight of colonialism behind us in us and like that's part of this relationship too and it's not like let's not be afraid of that like let's actually again build the capacities the intellectual the affective the relational capacities so that we can have difficult conversations without the relationships falling apart which i don't think we're really like prepared for that for the most part <laughs> I agree. I uh, was trained as a coach a few years ago, and part of it was around my desire to have better skills for mm -hmm. sitting and listening and being in that space of, you know, trying to be in the space of mutuality, right? And, and being a better listener and, and kind of checking myself before I react to something. And I think faculty in general really lack the capacity to sit and wait before they respond. And it has, it has served me well <laughs> because yeah, well, you have so much uh, to learn, right? Yeah. Because we're also taught to, that we're supposed to have all the answers, right? Like that's what the profession kind of steers us toward. And perhaps, especially as women, we're sort of like caught in this thing of like, we want to do it differently, but if we don't perform that, then they're not going to take us seriously. So there's also that intention. Wow. Like that. I could talk to you all day. Sharon. <laughs> okay. Any last thoughts, Sharon, before we wrap up? Just that, like, I'm glad to see that on the one hand that there are more people interested in this kind of work. And I also, I hope that they realize that it's a long haul lifetime process. So that's why I come back to like the developing stamina. Like how do we actually sustain this over the long haul? Because there's often this like initial wave of enthusiasm and excitement, yeah. um, especially for white people who are sort of new to this. And then there's the inevitable drop where conflict happens, where they make a mistake, where they see how complex it is, and then they want to give up. So let's not get stuck in that pit because it's our responsibility not to, because indigenous racialized black people have been fighting this fight for a long time. And that's that labor has not been optional for them. So it shouldn't be optional for us, but we often kind of end up giving up because we, we don't have the stamina to, to keep going. And I think, how do we, develop that and how can, and can we as educators support our students to develop that as well oh I love that well and you're right and and it's such a, a position of privilege to give up to have the option to give up mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. to move on to something else yeah absolutely yeah. well thank you for joining us this was really great Sharon thank you so much that was so much fun listeners as always thank you for joining us We'll be back next week with Don Keogh Culpepper at the University of Maryland in College Park, Maryland. Thank you for listening.